Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's Insight Assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Over the weekend, two major Saudi oil refineries were attacked. The U.S. government is blaming Iran, and there are real concerns now about actual combat between U.S. and Iranian forces. That's Today on Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Zach Beecham, here with Jen Williams and special guest Matt Iglesias, while Alex is in Korea. Hello, Matt. Hi. Before we delve in, I want to mention that we're conducting an audience survey to better serve you. It takes no more than five minutes, and it would really help us if you worked on this. So take the survey at voxmedia.com slash podsurvey. Uh, Jen, why don't we start at the beginning? Uh, what actually happened over the weekend? Sure. So two oil facilities in Saudi Arabia, these are state-owned facilities, were attacked. They were hit in two different areas. So one is like a really important oil refinery and the other one was less huge. But they were hit with what looks to be a combination of drone strikes and cruise missiles. At first, Yemen's Houthi rebels claimed responsibility. And now the U.S. is alleging that the Houthis, who do enjoy some Iranian backing, were not actually the culprits, that it was Iran. I don't actually know what the evidence for this claim is. Uh, Is there any publicly available evidence right now? Yeah. So initially, the U.S. came out and said that basically looking at the satellite photos, and they released some, some images, that it showed that these attacks couldn't have come from the south, which is where Yemen is located uh, in relation to these facilities, and had to come from different areas, which just so happened to be Iraq and Iran facing locations, which, you know, lends some credibility to the idea that it could have come from either Iran or Iranian-backed militia in Iraq. Now, how they actually determine, like, what direction something hit from a satellite photo, I cannot answer that question. But so the Saudis have since come out with a little bit more evidence. They basically came out and put a bunch of like pieces of these cruise missiles on a giant table and said, like, here are these pieces of this cruise missile that we found. But basically they were explaining like, okay, this kind of technology and the complexity of the attack and the direction, like all of this together suggests that it couldn't have been the Houthis because it was too complex of an attack. They don't have these capabilities. The cruise missile, as far as we can tell, analysts have said that it does actually look like something that the Houthis do actually have that technology, uh, which they got from Iran. So it's not like they're completely in the clear here. Um, But basically what they're going to be doing now is like taking 
the uh, the technical term is a computer thingy. Uh, <laughs> computer thingy. Okay, out of gotcha. The, like out of the cruise missile. Cruise missile has a guidance system. Right. Right. And, so they're and gonna, you can disassemble yeah, it. And so they're gonna That's why we have you on, Matt, to explain computer thingies. <laughs> right. Thank you. Um, but they're basically going to take that out and essentially reverse engineer it and see if they can trace back its flight path. So that should be pretty solid evidence. But the problem is that you have the Saudi government and the U.S. government and the Iranian government. All three are not, like, necessarily the most trustworthy when it comes to saying who attacked whom. So that's part of the whole kind of mess here. And also, I mean, there's a question of, like, how much difference does this make exactly in, in policy terms, right? I mean, the the Houthis are supported by Iran. Like, this is an ongoing right. conflict one way or the other. Um, if you If you wanted to hold Iran responsible as a as a as a like causal matter right you you could sort of argue it either way yeah. in either case it seems to me like it's it's sort of fun to have this like csi persian gulf but like <laughs> I, it's not it's not obvious to me how relevant this is to like the actual policy question yeah i mean it, it kind of seems from trump's comments on this that he's going to do whatever he wants or whatever Saudi wants, right? Because he said in a tweet that the U.S. is, quote-unquote, locked and loaded to respond militarily, but also that we're waiting to hear what the Saudis are going to do. So that seems to suggest that Trump is going to attack the Houthis or Iran, maybe, if the Saudis say it's okay. Uh, it's, it's kind of an odd situation and one that doesn't seem to depend entirely on attribution, but that has created an air of conflict and fear surrounding what's going on right now. So, of course, this raises the question, uh, why? Why is the U.S. responding so aggressively to an attack that is not, in fact, on the United States? Right. I just want to make that clear. We've heard a lot from the administration uh, and from some analysts saying, you know, this is an act of war. And, like, yeah, that's fair. But not on the United States, because last time I checked, the United States was not located inside of Saudi Arabian oil facilities. But— That gets to a point that, Matt, you made in a recent piece on the site um, that I really want to get into, which is talking about, like, why Trump reacted this way, right? So it was really strange because, you know, you have Trump, who is this guy who's like, no more foreign wars, you know, America first, pulling U.S. troops. Let's not, you know, spend money on all these foreign wars abroad. Let's rebuild at home. And then it was like, I'll just wait to see what Saudi Arabia tells me to do and maybe we'll go to war or not. So what, uh, what the hell? Yeah, I mean, Trump takes a skeptical view of alliances in general, but a very kind view of Saudi Arabia. And we've seen that, you know, throughout his administration across a range of topics with with Jamal Khashoggi's murder and uh, various things related to the war in Yemen. Um, He has he's vetoed five pieces of legislation as president. Four of them were related to Saudi Arabia. Um, So this is like a, a rare topic on which Democrats and Republicans have sometimes come together. And then Trump has fought back against a bipartisan consensus in um, Congress, he seems to have personally some business connections, relationships with the Saudi government. We don't know that much about it because he's secretive, uh, but a, a report was leaked to the Washington Post about how MBS's entourage showed up unexpectedly at the Trump Hotel in New York, and they apparently spent enough money to be single-handedly responsible for a boost in revenue. Um, there's stuff with Saudi lobbyists in his hotel in Washington. And then what he always says is that the Saudis are important customers for American arms exports. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that, too, because, like, one— 
part of it is, is there some weird thing going on with, like, Trump's personal finances? And the other is the public statements that he's made, in particular around the murder of Jamal Khashoggi and the legislation that you mentioned, which is, look, I want to keep these arms sales. Saudi does buy billions of dollars worth of arms, weapons, weapon systems, all kinds of stuff. Apparently not ones that are good enough to stop drones and cruise missiles from hitting your oil facilities, but that's another issue. Essentially, his argument is that creates jobs, and I want to create jobs for America. So this is actually America first, right? That's the argument. Now, pushing that to, and that means we should also go to war to defend Saudi Arabia is like a bit of a stretch from like, because jobs, I'm going to start a war. Like that's, that's where it kind of loses me. Yeah, I think it's true that Trump's motivation here is both definitely venal and quite possibly corrupt based on what we know. But he's not the only person urging the United States to take military action right. or who has at least suggested the U.S. should, right? Like, there's a whole swath of elite opinion in Washington and in Congress that suggests for a variety of different reasons the United States should, in fact, be going to war for Saudi Arabia, right? And you have a variety of different arguments. For right. That. And so I, a question I have is, like, how does this—obviously, we've been arguing about Iran policy— for a long time in the United States, long before this cruise missile strike. And, you know, some of the people I saw, like like Lindsey Graham was on Twitter, and he seemed he seemed very aggressive. Uh, but this <laughs> Lindsey is Graham? Yeah, yeah, no, <laughs> but, no. But, I mean, this is somebody who, like, he doesn't need a particular reason to, like, want military strikes on Iran. And, and so I, how, how much does this just cue into the sort of argument about Obama's nuclear diplomacy that, you know, we, we've been having for, for years and years here? So a lot of it, right? I mean, you know, the argument essentially is Iran is doing these bad actions all around. They're aggressive. The Iran deal was only about nuclear weapons very narrowly. Uh, it was one of the main criticisms that it didn't deal with things like ballistic missiles. This was not ballistic. This was a cruise missile. They're two different things. But still, um, you know, there are other actions backing proxy groups like the Houthis. So essentially the argument that you're hearing from that kind of side is is along those lines. Like you have to push back against Iran. Look, they're really bad guys. You have to You have to do something and hit them hard so that they stop. But what's interesting to me is that you're also hearing it from people who were, like, supportive of the Iran deal and who are not, like, a GOP policy hawk toward Iran. You know, the Pompeo, Bolton, like, those kind of guys. So you heard Martin Indyk, who, full disclosure, I used to work under, very far underneath, but uh, at Brookings. But he, you know, was heavily involved in negotiating peace between the Israelis and the Palestinians. He's worked with Democratic administrations. And he was making the argument that, like, we need to go and make this strike, like, to show Iran that you can't do this, basically. So you're hearing it from a lot of people that normally you wouldn't expect to hear being so belligerent toward Iran. Uh, I'd say there's, like, two axes of argument here. Like, one of them is the classic, you know, you're pro-Iran nuclear deal or pro-sanctioning and striking Iran, right? And, like, this is— to my mind, anyway, like the biggest dispute among DC foreign policy experts. Like it's really heated. It speaks to like deep disagreements, both partisan ones and about like the overall vision of what the United States should be and what the Middle East should look like. And that's some people are polarizing along those predictable lines. But there's also another set of axes, which is sort of the bigger what is America's role in the world stuff that right. Jen was alluding to at the end, right? Like you have some people who are basically using the reasoning that the George H.W. Bush administration used to justify the Gulf War, which is that the United States has a responsibility to prevent aggression, especially against the global oil supply. Aggression and, will not stand. Right. And that's why the U.S., you know, invaded 
Iraq when it invaded Kuwait to try to take Kuwait's oil. Right. And now that's why we got to stop the Iranians from messing with Saudi oil. And yeah, that that kind of logic, maybe it doesn't apply as well in this case. I'm sure it doesn't actually because they're not trying to annex territory. Like it's, it's a different thing. Right, but, but the principle that you're getting at is the same. Yeah. But, well— but the, the the sanctity of the Saudi oil here <laughs> and right, the explicitness right. of that, it, it's a little odd to me, right? I mean, just both in terms of, like, I have read, like, op-eds that I've, if I could take them back in time to, like, show some college protesters from the Bush years, they would be amazed to see how openly people are talking about the need to defend the oil. right. I remember during the Iraq War walking into, like, my community college classroom and in the hallway outside there was, like, no war for oil with, like, a picture of Iraq. But yes. But also in terms of, like, who's the aggressor here? It's like the Saudis have killed a lot of people in this conflict with the Houthis in, in Yemen, right? And, like, nobody nobody was talking about, well, like, let's let's bomb them. We need to We need to keep them all in line. Like, at most it was suggested that we maybe, like, participate less actively in the killing. Yeah. Well, Houthis don't have much oil as part of the problem. But what's interesting here to me, to bring it back to Trump, this started out, you know, we started out talking about how he was the one saying we're locked and loaded and how he was the one that was talking about potentially going to war. But as the days have progressed, it actually now seems that he's the one that's trying to back everyone up, which I think does go back to his, like, other instinct, right? Like, he has these warring instincts, and one is like, yeah, you know, I want to keep the Saudis happy and jobs and arms sales. And the other is like, I still really don't want to start a war in the Middle East or really anywhere else. We've now seen him backing away, you know, talking about, like, oh, we have this whole, like, raft of things we can do. We can, you know, put together, like, a global coalition, you know, international coalition of harder sanctions. And you can see him like, well, you know, we're, 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 we're you know, we're, we'll, we'll see, we'll see. There's a lot of uncertainty surrounding the situation one way or another, given this really strange heated debate going on. So after the break, we're going to talk about the implications of all this worrying uncertainty, specifically whether or not this might cause another global recession. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity, but giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's insight assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hey, welcome back, worldly listeners. We are talking about the U.S.-Saudi-Iran conflict over attacks this weekend on Saudi oil production capacities. Uh, And now that we're back, we want to zero in on the economic implications of what's going on, which is why we're super glad to have Matt, who is one of Vox's top economy knowers, chatting with us about what's going on. And Uh, computer thingy knowers. And computer thingy knowers, as we learned in the first section. Right. So, so Matt, why don't you walk our listeners through the basics of, of what 
the economic impact has been so far and why people are disturbed about it. Okay, so, you know, the basic thing that happened was like right away when this news hit, the global price of oil shot up uh, about seven bucks. Uh, and then it it has fallen a little bit since then. Sorry, that's per barrel, right? Yes, yeah. uh, per, per barrel. Um, it, and it's, it's fallen a little bit since then, as I think people have developed confidence that the Saudis can repair this stuff and it'll, it'll get back online. Uh, but prices are still elevated a little bit from where they were earlier in the month. Uh, to be clear, it's the jump didn't take oil to like some super high place in historical terms. Uh, the price of oil had been falling, though, because of sort of general concerns that worldwide economic growth is slowing down. But then it went up on a fear of, of supply disruptions. And of course, people think that a, that a bigger military conflict or just a new round of Iranian strikes, whatever it is, right, more bad stuff could happen. And that has people worried about the economy. So the issue here, when we're talking about oil prices, it's kind of twofold, right? Like for the United States. The first one is that when gas gets more expensive, people in the U.S. start spending less because they're spending more on gas and not on other things. And that means there's less money going into the economy, and that's what causes recessions. And the other issue is global, right, is that the U.S. exports its goods to other countries. Those other countries, when they're spending more on gas, they also buy less American goods, hence less demand and hence recession. So uh, how seriously do we weight these various two risks for the U.S. economy? I mean, again, you wouldn't want to look at a single $7 one-off price increase and say the sky is falling. But oil is very special in the global economy, right? And, and it's for sort of three big reasons. One is that, you know, most people who consume gasoline on a daily basis don't have a lot of short-term ability to substitute away from it. Right. So like if something like if for some reason like spaghetti became really expensive, you would buy less of it and just eat something else. Right. But people have to get to work. So they need to spend more and more on gasoline. They spend less on everything else. The other thing is all over the world, people have this exact same situation. Right. So it hurts domestic demand, but it also hurts global demand. And then the third thing is that it increases prices, right? So the Federal Reserve normally tries to balance inflation and economic growth. But high gas prices reduce economic growth, but they also push prices up. So it means they go from having a sort of easy job of, like, steering the wheel in the appropriate direction to a complicated sort of balance. And if you look at the last three recessions that the United States has had, they've all come at a time of high global commodity prices. And that's, I think, primarily because it, it makes that that monetary policy job much, much more difficult. So there's no need to panic over what happened last weekend, but that is the kind of thing that would cause a recession. Uh, people get, people worry about all kinds of stuff and it's like mostly overblown, but like oil supply disruptions are a really good thing to worry about. Right, and, and this is also coming in the context of broader conversations we were having before this happened, right, about could there be a recession on the horizon? Global growth is slowing in part because of trade wars and Having that, all this in the background, and then all this instability in the place that a lot of oil comes from, just kind of adds to those fears. And so I think collectively, that's part of what's going on as well. I think it's just the oil thing, is that people are seeing that in the context of this broader global concerns about recessions. And so people are like, not another thing, really? It, exactly, exactly. I mean, the, the Chinese economy has slowed a lot, right. in part because we have been trying to damage the Chinese economy. <laughs> yes. But it also hurts our economy a little. Uh, the European economy is doing poorly, in part because of links to China, in part because of their own stuff. So it's like nobody needs... Uh, like kicking the teeth of, of global growth. And that's what, you know, 
oil trouble can bring you. It seems like this is the problem with the president's line that we're energy independent, so we don't really need to worry about what's going on with global oil supplies, right? Because this is about the global economy. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's semi-true that we have achieved a a form of independence. Uh, The United States does still import crude oil, uh, but we don't on net import petroleum products. Uh, There's a whole complicated technical mumbo-jumbo as to how that works. Uh, But the reality is, is that like the price of gasoline in the United States is still impacted by events in other countries. For all these years that you talk about Middle Eastern oil, not that much Middle Eastern oil has ever come to the United States. Uh, We are very far from the Persian Gulf. Uh, We're close to Canada. We're close to Mexico. We're close to Venezuela. That's where we tend to import this stuff from. But oil supplies that go to Asia and Europe still impact global prices. Uh, You can look if you ever want to fire up some charts. There's the West Texas International price of oil, and there's the Brent crude price of oil. And they're a little distinct, and uh, WTI is always cheaper than Brent because the markets aren't perfectly connected, but they they move in sync, right? So there's no— there's no island from the global commodity market. And, you know, we are still exposed to these kind of shocks, no matter how much fracking or or whatever stuff Trump loves we do. And yeah, I think this goes back to the earlier conversation about whether or not war or some sort of military action. When we talk about, is there to be a war with Iran? What we're talking about in this case is not, like, you're not going to see the U.S. invade Iran over something like this. I mean, probably. But the possibility would be something like a military strike. And One of the likely or possible targets of such a U.S. military strike against Iran could very well be their oil facilities, which is problematic, right? If you're going to try to punish Iran and say, you cannot do these things, you cannot do this aggression, right? You cannot interrupt the global oil supply like this. And in response, we interrupt the global oil supply like this by bombing Iran's oil facilities, right? Like that's That's another part of this fear is that this could also erupt into a conflict, which in and of itself would be super disruptive to global oil markets. This has always been, from a sort of global economy perspective, the paradox of the the war for oil concept is that if you look at the invasion of Iraq in 2003, if you look at the Persian Gulf War in 1990-91— Those wars were very disruptive to global oil supplies. In both cases, like the easy way to get oil would be to just buy it from Saddam Hussein and the uh, effort to start wars, whatever exactly you think was motivating them, like that's what causes the disruption, right? And yeah, I mean, any Even ISIS kept the oil flowing, honestly. I mean, you want to fight them for other reasons, but— Exactly, exactly. So any kind—in reality, right, any kind of— escalation of conflict with Iran is going to mean less oil, right? Whether that's because Iranian facilities are directly attacked, because the shipping lanes uh, in the Gulf are, you know, under threat. So I think this is one of the things that's weighing on Trump's mind, right? That he has talks talking to him who have, like, big ideas about America's role in the world. But Trump, as a kind of, I don't know, like, guy who cares about the stock market, I think recognizes that a escalating conflict, at least in the short term, is going to mean economic pain. I, I am also not inclined to think it will have any long-term benefits, but but whatever benefits might exist, right, are in the longer term. Right, but that that's the argument that the sort of hawkish people make, right? Is like, if you don't show Iran that we're strong and aggressive and will confront their aggression, they will keep messing with the oil flows, which will in turn lead to longer price instability and threats to the global economy. So as— To be fair, there's 
you know, there is some logic to that argument, right? Like, Iran, if you don't do anything, will probably continue to do this. But the problem with, in particular, Iran is that if you do attack them and strike them and show them that you can't do this, they will also continue to keep doing what they're doing, right? Like, that's Iran's whole thing. So, well, and also, since we're already trying to wreck their economy with sanctions, right. they have to an extent, like, less to lose in a, like, downward economic spiral right. than, than we do. What, what this means, really, is that the economic and the foreign policy questions kind of converge on this big issue of how you think about dealing with Iran. Absolutely. Like, do you need to aggressively punish them? And that's the best way to prevent them from doing bad and disruptive things? Or is negotiation, relaxation of sanctions, the Iran nuclear deal, a better way to smooth over and prevent this kind of conflict from boiling over in the future? We're not going to try to answer that question right now. Uh, In fact, we're going to leave you there to ponder what you think about Iran's role and America's role in the world. Feel free to email Uh, us your thoughts. Yeah, worldlyinbox.com. That's right. Now, there is a ton of news this week. If you want to learn about the Trudeau black and brown face scandal, you want to learn about the whistleblower uh, and Trump's potentially scandalous call to a foreign leader, you want to learn about the uh, new national security advisor or the Israeli election, the collected group of us have articles on Vox.com that you should check out. We are also, again, as we mentioned at the beginning, conducting an audience survey to better serve you. It takes no more than five minutes, and it would just really help us out. So go to voxmedia.com slash survey. Now I want to thank our producer, Bird Pinkerton, who made all this come through. I want to thank Matt for joining us and really enriching our conversation about Iran and, and the economy. And I want to encourage all of you to rate, subscribe, review the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks a lot.